fulfilled prophecy demonstrates God's sovereign control over all things, including human choices. Jesus paid it all. His death completely satisfies God's justice. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 19, John 19, beginning at verse 17. Uh, today we're continuing our study uh, with John's description of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, all four gospel writers culminate their narratives with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The whole point of the incarnation, the coming of Christ to earth in human flesh, was the atonement was the cross. Jesus was literally born to die. That was the purpose of his coming. He came in human flesh to reveal God to the human race, number one, and to pay the penalty for human sin by enduring the wrath of God uh, that we deserve. He died in the place of the sinner so that God and man's broken relationship could be reconciled. That's the whole point of Christmas. And by divine design, God shows four authors to record the life of the Messiah, his life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Each of these four authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, shines light on the gospel from a different perspective, and it gives the reader a full-orbed picture. It's like those of you that ever watch football or watch sports know that they have this thing called instant replay. And whenever a call is disputed, the play is reviewed, generally in slow motion and generally from multiple angles, so you can actually see from every point of view what has gone on or what's going on. That's what the four authors of the uh, Gospels give us. They give us four perspectives on what's going on. Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. on Friday morning, died at 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon. He made seven statements that are recorded while he was on the cross. His first statement was a petition. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, this is so unusual, it obviously is divine. No one had ever heard anyone being crucified, which was enormously painful, ask God to forgive those who were killing him. That statement, that prayer, that petition from Christ was probably the impetus for one of the robbers on the cross next to Jesus to confess his own sin and then petition Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, because now he knew that Jesus was a God of forgiveness because he heard him forgive those who were crucifying him. And Jesus' second statement from the cross is the most wonderful promise in the Bible. Today you will be with me in paradise. There is no greater promise in all of Scripture. When Jesus sees his mother and his cousin John at the foot of the cross, he says, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. That's the third set of statements. Those took place between 9 a.m. and noon. 
At 12 noon, a profound darkness covered the land until 3 p.m. So three hours of darkness. This was presaged by the darkness that covered Egypt as one of God's plagues. For three hours, Jesus makes no statement on the cross. There is silence. At 3 p.m., about 3 p.m., Jesus makes four statements. He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. That's the very first verse. God has abandoned his son for these three hours and has been pouring out his wrath on his own son uh, for our sakes, the, the wrath that we deserve. Jesus' fifth statement is, I thirst. And the sixth statement is, it is finished. His seventh and final statement is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, immediately following Jesus' death, simultaneously, Matthew records that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom uh, in the temple, which opened the way to God. You remember the Holy of Holies was where the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant was, and no one could enter that except the high priest once a year carrying blood. That curtain was four inches thick. It was a, a cloth curtain, multiple, obviously, uh, seams in there, and it was torn top to bottom, indicating that the way now to God was open through the cross, the symbol. Furthermore, there was a great earthquake. Rocks were split. Tombs were opened, and people were raised from the dead and literally walked around Jerusalem and were visibly seen. So the contrast here is pretty dramatic. People around the cross are mocking Jesus because he's too weak to save himself, and God is shouting through his creation, Jesus, my son, is king, and the whole creation understands that and responds accordingly. The Roman centurion observes these events, the cataclysms. He observes the darkness and the earthquake and the rock splitting and the tombs opening, and he says, truly, this was the son of God. Now, of the four gospel writers, only John was probably an eyewitness to the, to the crucifixion. Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke were certainly not there. So let's take a look at John's eyewitness narrative of this event, beginning at verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on each side, and Jesus in between. Here's the principle. Jesus chose to endure the cross because he loved his Father and he loved people. Jesus chose to endure the cross because he loved his Father and he loves people. I want you to note that John notes specifically that Jesus voluntarily walked toward the place of his death, toward the place of the skull. That was uncommon. When someone was going to be crucified, terror was the normal response on the part of the victim. And sometimes it was so great that the Roman soldiers literally had to drive the condemned person toward the cross with a point of a sword in their back. In extreme cases, they would literally tie the condemned person to the cross and drag it uh, to the place where they were to be crucified because they were so terrified. Part of the punishment in normal cases was being forced to carry the cross beam yourself to the cross. Uh, that was weighed about 75 to 100 pounds, so it was not a light thing. The vertical post you were crucified on, that was permanently placed there. Wood was very scarce, so there weren't new crosses for everybody. They would use the same wood over and over again. There's not a lot of rainfall in Israel, so there's not a lot of wood. Scripture tells us that Jesus was able to carry this horizontal beam partway, but because of blood loss and his being scourged, which we talked about last week, Simon of Cyrene 
carried it the rest of the way to Calvary. Now, this event, this crucifixion, has a foreshadowing 2,000 years before this time. Uh, Genesis 22, God commands Abraham to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, on an altar at this precise location, the top of Mount Moriah. Now it's called Mount Zion, but it's the exact location where Christ was crucified. Abraham obeys. He gives the wood for the sacrifice to Isaac, and he says, carry that up the hill, which is a foreshadowing that even as Isaac submitted to his father Abraham, Jesus the son submitted to his father and carried his own cross, the wood on his back, to Golgotha where he was going to be crucified. Golgotha is an Aramaic word which means skull. Uh, The Latin word is calvary, calvarium, which means either bald head or skull. So clearly we're talking about a place of death. The exact location of Jesus' crucifixion and burial site is unknown. There's two sites that uh, are really thought of as distinct possibilities. The traditional crucifixion site is no longer visible. It's covered over by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. That church was constructed in 326 A.D. on the orders of the Emperor Constantine after his conversion to Christianity. By the way, Constantine was the emperor that outlawed crucifixion in the Roman Empire in about 326 as a form of execution. So this building, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, covers both the site of the crucifixion. It also covers the cave where Jesus is thought to be buried. Now, there's another potential site of the crucifixion. It's called Gordon's Calvary. Charles Gordon was a British Army officer who formally proposed this site in 1882. He actually was stationed in Palestine with the British Army for about 1840. He'd been there for some time. uh, And they discovered a very large cistern and uh, a burial site, etc. So the location of this cross, this Golgotha, this Calvary, is a rocky outcropping. You've probably seen pictures of it. It resembles a skull with two indentations for eyes. The locals call it Skull Hill, which gives you an idea that it's had that name for some time. At the time of Christ, this was located outside the walls, just north of the Damascus Gate. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know today it's right next to a bus station. The garden tomb is nearby, and some believe that's where Jesus is buried. So if you're going to Israel, to see the location, they're either going to take you to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or they're going to take you to Gordon's Calvary and the Garden Tomb. Now, Romans, the Roman Empire, made crucifixion a public event. And they did it as a warning to everyone watching, don't rebel against Rome, don't break laws, or what happened to this person will happen to you and you're going to see it visibly. The path that Jesus walked in Jerusalem. So part of this making it visible is they would take the person with the cross and they would parade them on a route to where they were going to be crucified and they would make that route as long as possible so the public could see that person carrying their cross and quite frankly be terrified so that you will not break the law. So it was a deterrent to rebelling against Rome. Now that path that Jesus walked is called Via Dolorosa and that's in Spanish. It means sorrowful way or the way of suffering. And you wonder, you say, okay, I'm in Israel. It's the first century, and they name this Via Dolorosa. What's going on? Well, the entire 10th legion of the Roman army was Spanish. And by the way, Pontius Pilate came from Spain. 
So there's quite a lot of Spanish connectivity here at that point in time. The current route, when you go to Jerusalem today, you can walk the Via Della Rosa. That route was only finalized in the 18th century. The actual route's probably 30 feet underground, you know, because there's been so much building over the last 2,000 years. Most of ancient Jerusalem we're still uncovering. 600 meters long, and there are 14 stations of the cross for prayer and meditation on that particular route. Now, the gospel writers are unique in the sense that they really don't give us much detail about the crucifixion. John says, and they crucified him. And that's the extent of his description. Virtually everyone in that era had witnessed the crucifixion, and they knew of its horrors. Crucifixion was a dreadful, painful, and shameful way to die. It was actually invented by the Persians. And the Persians invented crucifixion. The first person we have in Scripture that's crucified is probably Haman. In the book of Esther, it says he was hung. Actually, he was impaled, uh, which they, means crucified at that point. The Persians believed that the earth itself was sacred, the ground, the dirt. So they wouldn't want to kill somebody on the ground, so they suspended them above the ground on a cross and killed them between heaven and earth so they wouldn't desecrate the ground. That was the moral, religious impetus for the beginnings of crucifixion. It was passed on to the Phoenicians, and uh, it was really um, perfected by the Romans. Crux means cross, crucifixion, C-R-U-X means cross in Latin. Figere means fasten, so crucifixion means to fasten somebody to a cross. And this process of killing someone was designed to inflict maximum punishment for a maximum amount of time. It was not spoke of in polite circles in the Roman Empire. It was considered awful, detestable. Um, it was reserved for slaves. It was reserved for foreigners. It was reserved for the vilest of criminals and especially reserved for revolutionaries. Rome would crucify revolutionaries in a heartbeat because they wanted to put down any and all insurrection against Rome. So the one crucified was laid flat on her back and their arms were fastened to the horizontal cross piece. That was called the patibulum. And they took a large spike, usually seven inches long, and they hammered it through the wrist. You would never hammer it through the hand because it would tear free when your body weight, it would just rip the hand. So you would go right here in the wrist because you had the bone structure that would hold you on the cross, but you have an enormous amount of nerves in the wrist and the, the wrist pain was just excruciating, agonizing pain. And of course, when you hung, your shoulders dislocated, your elbows dislocated, so each arm would lengthen out about six inches, so you slumped when you were on the cross. Uh, your knees were bent, and they would pound nails through the top of your feet, also into the vertical beam, and they had an enormous amount of pain there as well. They would put a little peg on the vertical cross, and you could kind of sit on that, and you would think to yourself, well, how kind was that? They would give you a place to rest your weight. Actually, that was a form of torture because it would uh, promote longevity. If you had a place to sit, you could breathe a little longer, you could suffer for a few more hours. So it was designed to prolong the suffering. Most people on the cross, it took two to three days to die. Uh, usually from blood loss, dehydration, a heart failure was not uncommon. Uh, usually asphyxiation was a major cause. So in order to breathe in, when you take air in, your diaphragm here has to go down when you breathe in. So pay attention to your breathing. You breathe in, the diaphragm goes down, the lungs expand, 
and that's air, when air enters. Now, when you exhale, the diaphragm comes up and the air goes out. When you're hanging on a cross, the body weight pulls down on the diaphragm. That means you can inhale, but you can't exhale. So in order to exhale, you have to push up with your legs and your arms in order to get the diaphragm up so you can exhale. The problem with that is it's excruciatingly painful to push up with your legs when you have spikes in them. But you have to breathe, and if you don't push up, you're not going to breathe. This is the reason why we're going to find out next week the Romans would typically come along and they would take sledgehammers and they would smash your shins, break your legs, so you couldn't push up anymore. And you, you would asphyxiate quite soon. So actually breaking your legs was a merciful process. As awful as Jesus' physical suffering was, it was really nothing compared to his spiritual suffering. And we don't talk a lot about that because, quite frankly, we don't understand it. God is so perfectly righteous that any sin against him is justly punished by eternal separation from him. We call that hell, separation from God. And we do not understand, really, the perfect holiness of God. We see it in Scripture when fallen humans come in contact with Almighty God. They are terrified and fall on their face because they're in the presence of holiness and they recognize their sinfulness. But on the cross, the real punishment, the real pain was Holy Father God pouring out His righteous wrath against all sin on His only Son, which begs the question, why did Jesus go to the cross? Why put up with that degree of agony and pain? Well, number one, he loved his father, who was holy, and he loved people who were sinful. And he wanted to fulfill his father's plan to reconcile God and, and people's broken relationship. Hebrews 12, 2 gives us an extraordinary paradox. It says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Ephesians 5, 2 is a command to us as believers. He says, you believers walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And how do we know he loved us? Gave himself up for us and offering in a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So Jesus went to the cross because he knew of the joy that he was going to experience coming into his father's presence, having finished the task that God gave him. And he went to the cross to redeem us, to pay our sin debt, so that we could have a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, John, actually several of the Gospel writers note that there are two other people that were crucified with Jesus. Matthew and Luke name them as criminals or robbers, Barabbas. They might have been cohorts of Barabbas, for all we know. When you had multiple crucifixions, the most guilty person was always put in the middle. And that's where Jesus was which we look at and say he's perfectly innocent, but he's going to take on the sins of the world. So in God's eyes, he is the most guilty because he is our sin bearer. And that was a fulfillment of promise, of prophecy. Isaiah 53.12 says that Messiah is going to be, quote, numbered with the transgressors as he paid for the sins of the world and prayed for the transgressors. So Jesus 
The perfectly innocent one is one with sinners in his death, which is interesting because he lived with sinners in his life and he died with sinners in his death. That's good news for you and I, right? He lives with us today inside us through the Holy Spirit and we have our sins forgiven by his finished work on the cross. Verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, quote, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Here's the principle. Despite human hostility, God the Father has declared that his son is the king overall. Despite human hostility, God the Father has declared that his son is the king overall. So when you were conscripted to carry a cross as a victim, as a criminal... Typically, they would write a description of your crimes, what you were charged with, what you were found guilty with, and they would put it on a placard, and they would whiten this placard with gypsum so the, the white lettering, or the, the black lettering would be very visible. And they would carry that placard of your crimes in front of you as you were carrying your cross through the city streets to your death. And then when you were crucified, they would take that placard with your crimes and they would attach it to the top of the cross. So anybody and everybody who was watching said, we know what they're crucified for. We know what they were convicted of. Here's what they did that caused them to be crucified. Now, contrary to popular imagery, Jesus' crucifixion did not take place on a hill. You know, when you see pictures of the crucifixion, you know, you see this... Huge mountain, and Jesus is at the top. That's not how it worked. Rome crucified people in locations of maximum traffic because they wanted everybody to see their power. So Jesus was likely crucified, you know, on I-5, where there was a lot of traffic, near a major thoroughfare. Now, especially during Passover, there was a lot of pilgrims who were coming into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, so they always wanted to crucify you where there was huge amounts of foot traffic, which they did. As ghoulish as this sounds, crucifixions were often public events, and crowds would turn out to watch them. Pilate wrote on top of the placard that went above Jesus' head what he was crucified for, and the charges that led to his death are, quote, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. That was the rationale given by Rome for his death. And it was written in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Hebrew or Aramaic, it was the language of the Jewish people, the common language of the, the, uh, the masses in Israel. Latin was the language of the Roman ruling government, and Greek was the common language of the culture, education, trade, commerce, etc., so when Rome wrote the charges in three languages, they were saying, we want everybody here to know, this was a multilingual environment, a lot of different languages spoken, we want to know what Jesus was crucified for. John notes this, interestingly enough, to demonstrate that Jesus' death 
was for the whole world, not just for the Jewish people. And Pilate wrote this inscription in order to mock the Jews, in order to insult the Jewish religious leaders. He's basically saying, look, we don't honor Jewish kings, we kill them, we crucify them. Now, the Jewish leaders knew that Pilate despised them. They had a long-standing beef with him. And they asked him, in the Greek text, they asked him multiple times, change the lettering. Don't say the king of the Jews. We don't want that. Say, he said he was the king of the Jews, right? We don't want Rome's endorsement that this character is the king of the Jews. And we don't want anybody to think that we said he's the king of the Jews. We want you to say, he said he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate finally develops a little backbone, and he says, what I've written, I've written, go pound sand, it's not going to be changed. Even though Pilate and the world rejected Jesus as king, God the Father has already installed Jesus as king from eternity past. Psalm 2.2, actually, I highly recommend you read Psalm 2, when you read the news flow on your electronic device or a physical paper or whatever you get, it is terribly easy to believe the lie that humans are really in charge of planet Earth. And that people that we elect to positions of power actually are in control. You need to disabuse yourself of that foolishness right there. They're not in charge. They think they're in charge. That's why they do stupid things from time to time. We need to be praying for wisdom for them every day because it's an increasingly difficult job. What is the reality? Psalm 2.2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Jesus the Messiah. And what do they say? Let us tear their, God's fetters, God's limitations apart and cast away God's cords from us. He, God, who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he, God, will speak to them, the earthly kings, in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, here's the money verse, verse 6, but as for me, God, I have installed my king, Jesus, upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that the human race rebels against God so earthly rulers, kings and presidents and senators, etc., etc., also rebel against the God since they're sinners like all of us, and they plot to overthrow God so they can run the universe. And you know there's a lot of people on planet Earth that think if they've got a large enough position and a large enough supporter base, they can tell everybody else what to do. Human authorities think they can rule without God, just like you and I think we can run our life without God from time to time. God says, I am furious with those rebels and I will terrify them. Almighty God says, I have already installed Jesus as king over everything and everyone. Remember what Gabriel told to Mary? Your son will be called Jesus. He will rule over the nation of Israel. And here's the money verse. His kingdom will be forever. So despite all the stuff that's going on at the crucifixion where it looks like Pilate and Rome and the Jewish religious leaders in charge, they're not in charge. God is in charge. When we look today at our culture and we look like the whole thing's falling apart, it is right on God's schedule. There is nothing that happens on planet Earth that doesn't cross his desk. And God says, 
Jesus Christ is king, and I have installed him. And since I created the universe, what I say goes. Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, quote, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Here's the principle. Fulfilled prophecy demonstrates God's sovereign control over all things, including human choices. Fulfilled prophecy demonstrates God's sovereign control over all things, including human choices. Now, your typical Roman soldier has seen many crucifixions. They're kind of routine for them. It was very common practice for the soldiers, generally four, that performed the crucifixion to keep the executed person's clothing as part of their compensation. Everyone was crucified naked, so they, whatever clothing they wore was, was distributed among the soldiers. And, of course, being crucified naked was extraordinarily shameful and humiliating, which David had prophesied in Psalm 22:16. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare, right? Apparently, there were four soldiers that crucified the quartarian. They divided his garments among them, kind of like a bonus pay. Now, the typical Jewish male wore five pieces of clothing. Sandals, a head covering, a belt, an outer cloak or coat, and a tunic, which is kind of a shoulder-to-knees-length inner garment you wore against your skin. It had armholes and a hole for your neck. It was like, a, I guess, a very large T-shirt, loosely fitting, uh, sleeves, and usually they did two pieces, one in the front and one in the back, and they had seams down the side and seams down the side. This was a one-piece tunic woven from one piece of cloth. Well, they had a problem. They cast lots, and they picked up the four pieces and divided them up. There was five pieces, four soldiers. Who was going to get the fifth piece, the tunic? And they didn't want to tear it since it was valuable. It was made out of one piece. So it said they cast lots, they rolled the dice, whatever they did to see who would win it. And John notes for the multiple time here, third time, that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. John, Psalm 22.8 says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, which precisely occurred as God designed. So King David in Psalm 22, about 1,000 B.C., he's accurately describing crucifixion in detail. I recommend you read Psalm 22. And he's describing it about three, 400 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians. He described what would happen to Messiah's crucifixion a thousand years in the future. I'm not sure he understood what he was writing, but here's the point. God authenticates his word, the Bible, as having a supernatural origin by predicting the future in advance and then making the future happen exactly on schedule. So you know that this comes from God, an extraterrestrial source, not human writing, because humans can't predict and make the future happen. John notes that the reason the soldiers rolled the dice was because God had prophesied it would happen a thousand years prior. So John, over and over again as you read this narrative, 
He's highlighting God's sovereign control over every detail of Jesus' crucifixion, even down to the rolling of the dice. The cross was not an accident. It was an eternally planned achievement. So you say, well, what's the application? Well, the same is true in our lives. Nothing happens in your life by accident. Even your foolish and my foolish choices don't surprise God. God doesn't say, I never thought Brad could do something that stupid. He knows me. He knows I can do something that stupid. That doesn't surprise him. And that's already taken into account in his divine plan for my life and his divine plan for your life. So we know that God loves us. He demonstrated at the cross, and we know that he's working out an eternally good plan, every detail. So what do we do? We trust him. We trust him. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he had loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Here's the principle. Jesus is always concerned about the needs of others. Jesus is always concerned about the needs of others. So John here contrasts the four soldiers who don't want to be there. They're there because it's a job. They're getting paid to execute Jesus. And there are four faithful women who are at the cross because they wouldn't be anyplace else. They want to be there. There's a contrast here. The soldiers join the crowd in mocking Jesus, daring him to come down from the cross. They don't value Jesus. They don't know him. All they value is his used clothing. And many today feel the same way about Jesus. They don't value Jesus for who he is. They really don't know him. What they want God for is they want him to meet their material and emotional needs. And one of the ways we can tell in our own life when we are probably talking to God for what he can do instead of who he is, is monitor your prayer requests. When your prayers sound like a shopping list, chances are you're treating God for what he can do for you instead of who he is. So just monitor what you pray to the Lord about. Now these four women, in contrast to the soldiers, they know Jesus well and they value him. We know at least two of them knew Jesus from the time he was born. It's interesting that there are four women present. Who's missing? Where are the disciples? Where are the ones who said, we'll never leave you, we'll never depart, we'll never deny? Gone. No mention. It seems that John is the only one of the 11 who stayed with Jesus through the trial, went into the house of Caiaphas, and is here at the cross with him. And the four women that are here are Jesus' earthly mother named Mary, Mary's sister named Salome, who is the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee. There is another Mary, the wife of Clopas. There's some suggestions that Clopas and Adelphius are variants of the same name. If that's true, then this Mary may be the mother of James, the son of Alphaeus. James, the son of Alphaeus, is one of the 11 disciples. And then Mary Magdalene, who's well-known. She was from the village of Magdala. Uh, Magdala was a town not far from Tiberias, so it's on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. And she had seven demons cast out from her. And she's faithfully followed Jesus ever since. She was the very first one to see Jesus after his resurrection. What is so um, 
astounding to us is Jesus' compassion and other directedness even in the middle of intense suffering. I don't know if you've ever been in um, intense pain. Intense pain can be all-consuming. We are probably never more selfish than we are when we are in enormous pain. I mean, it consumes our attention. Jesus is on the cross. He's in absolute agony, and he's thinking about the needs of other people. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's thinking about other people and their need for our Savior. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. He's thinking about somebody else, the thief on the cross. He says, woman, behold your son. He's thinking about other people. He wants to ensure that Mary, his widowed mother, will be taken care of. Apparently, Joseph has died. Jesus is the eldest son. He's the head of the family. And in that era, widows had great difficulty in taking care of themselves. So typically, they would be cared for by their adult children after the death of her husband. And you say, well, why did Jesus ask John to do it? Why not one of his brothers? Well, number one, they don't believe in him. Number two, they're not there. They're not at the cross. John's at the cross. So when John, Jesus says to Mary, behold your son, he says to John, behold your mother, he's saying, John, from now on, it's your responsibility to care for Mary the same as you would care for your own mother. Now remember, John and Jesus are first cousins because Mary and Salome are sisters. Salome's the mother of John, Mary's the mother of Jesus. So we have uh, two sisters and two cousins. And it says, from that moment on, John took her into his own home as a member of his own family. Now, we do know that after Jesus' resurrection, his brothers do come to faith. We see them in the book of Acts. His half-brother, Jesus' half-brother James, becomes the head of the Jerusalem church. Very, very, very prominent. And he writes the epistle of James. So it's very likely that when they came to faith, Mary's other sons took over the care of her from John at that point in time. But John was faithful And Jesus was obviously thinking about the needs of his mother when he talked to John from the cross. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here's the principle. Jesus paid it all. His death completely satisfies God's justice, so now we can have a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. Let me say that again. Jesus paid it all. His death completely satisfies God's justice, so now we can have a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, One thing you need to understand, that Jesus has been studying Scripture since he was a child. And he knew all about the Scriptures that prophesied his own coming, his life, his death. And he knew that David had prophesied his crucifixion in Psalm 22 in the Old Testament. And Jesus is consciously now going to fulfill those prophecies. Psalm 22, 15 says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, You lay me in the dust of death. Remember, Psalm 22 is a crucifixion psalm. It's all about crucifixion. Psalm 69, also written by David, Psalm 69, 3, David is speaking. He says, I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. 
Verse 21, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. He's talking about the upcoming crucifixion a thousand years in the future. Now the Greek word for what we call vinegar is oxos and it just means sour wine. It, it's, um, for those of you back in the day who uh, know what Boone's Farm is or Ripple, I mean I'm talking way back in the day, this, this was rot gut. I mean this was just really cheap wine, you know. 40, 50 years ago, you buy a gallon over two bucks, literally, two buck chuck. So it was a very cheap sour wine. It was drunk by the masses in order to quench their thirst. And in Scripture, many, many times you'll see them drinking wine and not water. Well, that's pretty obvious. Water was contaminated, could very easily be contaminated, especially if it came out of a cistern and dead things fell in there and drowned, you know? So most of the time, they would take water, they would take grapes, they would produce wine because the fermentation would... would purify the liquid. And then they would add water back into the wine, maybe four or five to one. So they were drinking wine, but it was extremely diluted wine. It was all about purification. They just simply wanted the fermentation to give them something that wasn't contaminated to drink. So they put a jar full of sour wine at the foot of the cross. That was number one for the soldiers, but two, it was also for the one being crucified because one of the curses, literally, of being crucified and flogged is that you have a raging thirst because you're dehydrated. And it says they took a branch of hyssop. Uh, hyssop was a plant. It had a stalk about three feet long. It had a fluffy uh, end. And they dipped it into the char of wine and then lifted it up for Jesus to moisten his lips and his throat. One of the other misconceptions is, is when you see artists rendering of the cross, you see it very elevated. I mean, you know, Jesus' feet are six feet off the ground. That's not true. When they crucified someone, your, your, your top cross beam... I mean, your top vertical pole was maybe seven, eight feet high. So the person's feet were pretty close to the ground, right? In Exodus 12, those of you who uh, remember the Passover, the hyssop plant was very, very crucial. The hyssop plant was used by the Israelites as a paintbrush. And God said, take the hyssop plant, that stalk with a fluffy end, dip it into lamb's blood from the lamb you've slain, right? and daub it on the door posts and on the top posts, the lentils at that point in time, so that when the angel of death sees the blood, they will pass over your house and they won't kill your firstborn child. This was going to be a, a plague on Egypt. And it was a picture of the Passover to come with the Lamb of God shedding his blood to take away the sins of the world. At the exact same time, Jesus is on the cross on Friday, on Passover. Priests down in Jerusalem are slaughtering lambs who were the picture of taking away of sin. Now, atonement means to cover. So a lamb could never take away sin, but they could cover it. But at the same time, they were slaughtering lambs. The real lamb of God was being crucified on Calvary, and his sins take away the sins of the world. They don't just cover on them. Jesus wanted to moisten his throat because he had more words to say. And after he drank the sour wine, he shouted, It is finished! That was not a cry of defeat, it was a cry of victory. I want you to know what he didn't say. He didn't say, I'm finished. He didn't say, we're finished. The mission is over. He said, it is finished. In the Greek, it is finished means tetelestai, as multiple applications. 
So when a priest, a Jewish priest, is examining a lamb for sacrifice, that lamb has to be perfect without blemish. If the priest examines the lamb and the lamb is perfect without blemish, he says, tetelestai, perfect without blemish. When an artist completed a work of art like a painting or a statue, a sculpture, they would say, tetelestai, it's completed, it's accomplished. The story of salvation is God's eternal masterpiece. And of course, Jesus is the perfect lamb of God. When you're doing business and you purchase an item and you pay for it, the merchant would stamp the invoice to Telestai, paid in full, right? The old song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, right? And lastly, when a servant was given a task, you told the servant, go do XYZ task. When they finished the task, they would come back to their master and they would say, to Telestai, right? The task is finished. Just hours before his death, in John 17, Jesus is praying to his Father, and he says in John 17, 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished, having finished, having tetelestai, the work which you have given me to do. God's work for Jesus is dying on the cross to pay for our salvation, and Jesus says, I have now finished that task, tetelestai, your sin debt is paid in full, which means there's nothing you can do to add to it. Christ has purchased salvation for us, and it is completed. Hebrews 10.11 says, every human priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin, but he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by one sacrifice he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Which means there is nothing you can do to add to your salvation. You can't say a mass and crucify him again. You can't do good works and add to his work. His sacrifice is perfect and it has purchased your salvation completely and God is satisfied with that sacrifice and therefore now can treat us as sons and daughters. He has paid our sin debt for all eternity, which means you can accept his sacrifice or you can reject his sacrifice, but you can't alter it. can't change it. John is highlighting throughout this entire crucifixion narrative the complete control Jesus possesses over everything that happens in this event, including his own death. Jesus had prior said, no one takes my life from me. No one. I lay it down voluntarily. Luke 23, 46 tells us that Jesus' very last words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The word spirit means pneuma, which means some of your translations may say he breathed his last. But it says he gave up his spirit. And you say, what does that mean? He gave his spirit to his father, his heavenly father, who he is going to see. What is so encompassing about the life of Christ and his death is that he lived for the glory of his heavenly Father, and he died for the glory of his heavenly Father, and he did both perfectly well so that we can follow his example. Let's summarize now, and then John, Tom will come and lead us in prayer and praise. Principle one, Jesus chose to endure the cross because he loved his Father and he loves people. That means you and me. Don't forget it. 
Despite human hostility, God the Father has declared that His Son is King over all. Human beings will continually try and run and rule things, and no matter what happens on planet Earth or in your life, Jesus Christ is King of that. Number three, fulfilled prophecy demonstrates God's sovereign control over all things, including human choices. There's hundreds of prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament about his first coming, there's a boatload left yet to be fulfilled about the second coming. We know the prophecies about his second coming are fulfilled, will be fulfilled, because the first coming has been prophesied and already fulfilled. It demonstrates God's sovereign control. Number four, Jesus is always concerned about the needs of others, which is a good example for us to be less self-centered. You will need divine power not to be self-centered, by the way. And lastly, and most importantly, Jesus paid it all. His death completely satisfied God's justice. So now we can have a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. As a result of Jesus paying our sin debt, we are adopted as sons and daughters into his family. At Christmas especially, we should remember that the purpose of the incarnation was the atonement. That was the point. So this Christmas, give him praise not just for being born, for what he did when he was here on planet Earth. Thank you for your attention. This was a heavy lesson. Uh, I thought a lot about what to say or what the Holy Spirit wanted to say, and I pray that he will take what's said and accomplish what he wants to in your life as a result of that. Love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.